Right, one of the questions that has most perplexed theologians down the centuries and which has actually divided Christians and churches alike is this question. If you are a Christian, can you lose your salvation? <clears throat> In other words, can you end up lost for an eternity separated from God in hell after being born again. And on the one hand, some Bible verses seem to say, no matter how badly we backslide, after coming to faith, even permanently backsliding, God has already saved us by grace. And it's all about his irreversible, sovereign choice, not our up and down response. For example, I'm just going to read four verses that uh, feed into this view. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that nobody can boast. Or Philippians 1, verse 6. I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Or Romans 8, 38 to 39, which says this, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or consider what Jesus said in John 5, 24. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has already crossed over from death to life. Sounds conclusive, doesn't it? And those who point to verses like these, and there are many, many other verses like them, often summarize their position with a little slogan, which is not incidentally found in the Bible, but is easy to remember, and it's once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved. But other Christians disagree, and they point to other verses in the Bible which seem to suggest something a little bit different. For example, Four verses I'm going to quote to you now. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-2. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, says Paul, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Or Matthew 10, 22, where Jesus says, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Or Matthew 7, 22 to 23, where Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, but Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, Jesus says, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Or final verse from this perspective, Hebrews 10, 26 to 27. It says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, 
but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Now, taken in isolation, these verses I just quoted seem to say that our salvation depends not so much on how we start out as Christians, but how we finish. And this is not just an intellectual curiosity for ivory tower scholars. There are very grave and serious eternal consequences tied up in this question, and they are consequences for every one of us here today to consider. And if ever there was a Bible character for whom this issue is especially relevant, it would have to be one of the most notorious characters in all history, the ultimate villain, Judas Iscariot, who is the focus of the passage we arrive at today. And it's in Matthew 27, verses 1 to 10. And it says this. Very early in the morning, the leading priests and the elders of the people met again to lay plans for putting Jesus to death. Then they bound him, led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he was filled with remorse. So he took the 30 pieces of silver back to the leading priests and the elders. I have sinned, he declared, for I have betrayed an innocent man. What do we care? They retorted. That's your problem. Then Jesus threw the, Judas sorry, threw the silver coins down in the temple and went out and hanged himself. The leading priests picked up the coins. It wouldn't be right to put this money in the temple treasury, they said, since it was payment for murder. After some discussion, they finally decided to buy the potter's field and they made it into a cemetery for foreigners. That is why the field is still called the field of blood. This fulfilled the prophecy of Jeremiah that says, they took the, the 30 pieces of silver, the price at which he was valued by the people of Israel and purchased the potter's field as the Lord directed. So this is the latest twist in the drama of Jesus's last week. Judas, who meets with the chief priests and agreed to hand Jesus over to their custody and signal to them who he is with a kiss, is now, the Bible says, filled with remorse and admits that he has wronged an innocent man. And when he sees that they are determined to kill him anyway, Judas throws his money onto the temple floor and he goes off in despair to hang himself. And Matthew notices that this is another Old Testament prophecy that has been fulfilled by Judas in a short space of time. The first was Zechariah 11:13, first spoken around 500 years BC. And it says that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Not 31, not 29.99, 30 pieces of silver, which of course is exactly what happened. The second fulfilled prophecy is Psalm 49 verse 1, written about a thousand years BC, which says, even my close friend 
one I trusted completely, one who shared my food, has turned against me. Which is quoted in John's Gospel, not Matthew, but John, when Judas leaves the Last Supper and slips off into the night to betray him. And then this third one here in verses 9 and 10, which is an echo of something Jeremiah said about 600 years BC about buying a potter's field for pieces of silver. Matthew wants us to know this, that even in this chaotic tailspin of events, when everything seems to be falling apart, God has everything under control. Yeah, This is not a disastrous tale of everything going badly wrong. On the contrary, it's actually confirmation that all is going exactly according to God's plan. This is no tragic accident. The truth is that God, in his limitless wisdom and his omnipotent power, has appointed all of this before the creation of the world, which leads us, doesn't it, to another difficult question. If all of this is predestined by God, and it's all according to his perfect plan, then how can Judas be personally responsible? God has decided this is going to happen. And there are, in fact, four possibilities here to consider. Number one, it was not predestined to happen, and it wasn't Judas's fault. It just randomly happened, and Judas didn't really understand what he was doing. Number two, it was not predestined to happen, so it was Judas's fault. It just randomly happened, but Judas knowingly did wrong. Or the third possibility, it was always predestined to happen, so therefore it cannot have been Judas's fault. God pre-planned that Judas had no choice, so he cannot therefore be held responsible. Yeah? Or four, it was always predestined to happen, and it was Judas's fault. See, God did plan it to the last detail, and Judas did evil, and he could have chosen another path. Which is it? The Bible says very clearly that it's number four. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign in all things. He knows the end from the beginning, and he steers all of history towards its Christ-exalting conclusion according to his glorious purpose, and that at the same time, we are 100% responsible for our choices, our actions. Our, what, we, what we choose to do is absolutely real. We can change the course of history by the decisions that we make. And the one verse in the Bible that perfectly brings together these two strands of God's sovereignty and human responsibility is in Matthew 26, 24, which says this. Jesus says, For the Son of Man must die as the scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. Right, back to Judas. What went wrong with this man? Judas is a close colleague 
and co-worker of Jesus. He's on a full-time three-year internship with the Lord Jesus. He's on Jesus's staff team. How good is that? He sits down and eats with the Son of God every day. It's awesome the access he has to the Lord Jesus. There is an open door from Jesus anytime he wants to ask him about anything that's troubling him. Judas listens to all of Jesus' amazing teaching. Judas witnesses every single one of Jesus' amazing miracles. Not only that, Judas goes out with the 12 and with the 72 on missions sent by Jesus. In the name of Jesus, they proclaim the kingdom, they heal the sick, and they drive out demons. And Judas is part of it. Peter says in Acts 1.17, he was one of our number. And he shared our ministry. And furthermore, Judas is given a position of trust. He's the treasurer. He's got every single generous contribution to Jesus' ministry going through him. Judas does all the spreadsheets, yeah? He, he keeps the books. But secretly, he begins to help himself from the common purse. And maybe, first of all, just once, just to settle a small personal debt, but nobody notices. Gets away with it. And so he does it again. And again, until it starts to become a pattern. And slowly, his heart begins to harden. A few weeks ago, we read about that wonderful story of the woman who pours out a whole jar of expensive perfume on Jesus' head. Remember that? Well, Matthew says that the disciples were cross and they grumbled about it, that it was a waste, that the money should have been given to the poor. But John's gospel specifies that Judas was leading the complaints. It came from Judas. He's coming across all holy, really caring about the poor and the marginalized. He's got such a generous heart, Judas. What a compassionate guy. We could give the money to the poor. But he's faking it. It's all an act. He's actually licking his lips at the idea of lining his pockets because Judas is a thief. For three whole years, this man is stealing from Jesus under everybody's nose. And tellingly, unlike all the other disciples, where we have a record... Judas never addresses Jesus as Lord. Not once. It's always rabbi, teacher, never Lord. See, Jesus can be his teacher, but Judas is a pupil who is not listening. It never really comes under Jesus' authority, under his lordship. And at the Last Supper, we saw it a few weeks ago, Judas closes his eyes and he bows his head as Jesus prays for him. He lets Jesus wash his feet moments before he slips out to betray him for money. Days earlier, Judas has seen his chance to hand Jesus over. The chief priests show him 30 glittering silver coins and his eyes light up at the sight of it. That's all it takes. Judas Iscariot loves money. He loves money more than he loves Jesus. The Bible is always talking about money. 
unembarrassed and unashamed and often presenting the use of our money as the most um, important indicator of how we're doing spiritually and morally. It's a top test of the seriousness of our discipleship, how we spend our money. And it's a test that Judas catastrophically failed. So, back to the question I began with. If you're a Christian, can you lose your salvation? Now, where I've landed after years of thinking about this and studying God's Word, reading books from various perspectives, where I've landed is this. One, you cannot lose your salvation. You cannot. You cannot lose it like you can misplace your keys or wonder where you left your phone. You can't lose your salvation like that. You cannot inadvertently find yourself outside of Christ and shut out of heaven forever because of some oversight or some lapse in concentration. Two, you cannot be robbed of your salvation either. You cannot. Those of us who've been victims of a burglary know how devastating it feels. Doesn't it feel terrible? If you know that experience, you know what I mean. Something precious to you is now missing. You'll probably never see it again. You feel violated. Someone's been in your home. Now, that cannot happen to you spiritually. No one can snatch you out of God's hand when unawares. You cannot lose your salvation and you cannot be robbed of it either. But you can throw it all away. And the Bible calls it making shipwreck of your faith. You can intentionally steer your relationship with God onto the rocks and bring the whole thing down to the seabed, never to be recovered. It is a fearful thing to do that. And fourthly, you can fake it. You can. You can pretend for years, you can pull the wall over people's eyes and know the whole time it's just a big act. You can be a spiritual fraud, knowing full well that what you portray, what you present in public is not really who you are when nobody's looking. And that is what Judas did. He threw it all away and he faked it. Well, how do I know I'm saved today? If you're asking that question, how do I know I'm saved today? I know because Jesus is really the Lord of my life, all of it. And I know that if I'm still walking with Christ today, as every step I take, I enjoy the ongoing assurance of his promise that he will hold on to me until my final breath. Keep walking. Well, so much for doctrine. It's been 20 minutes of that. Predestination against free will. And once saved, always saved against losing salvation. These are, as I said earlier, two of the fiercest theological debates in church history. Thousands of books, thousands, have been written about these two questions over 20 centuries, and we have spent 20 minutes looking at them this morning. And I want to spend the last 10 minutes or so available to me 
asking what lessons we can take away from Judas Iscariot. And the first lesson is this, number one. Judas was basically a taker, a taker and not a giver. He looked after number one. He only really cared about himself, his needs, his dreams, his desires, his ambition to make himself richer. Do you have a giving heart or do you have a taking one? Do you want to become more generous in your life? Do you want others, do you badly want others to come to know Jesus? The Bible says that we reap what we sow. In other words, we we draw out according to what we put in in our spiritual lives. So it's, it's being part of kings, just an opportunity to get my needs met, my happiness, my entertainment. Am I a spectator hoping to be wowed by what happens up here on the stage? Or do I see my church as a community that I invest time and resources and prayer into trusting that many will be blessed by what I put in my giver or a taker secondly how does Judas feel about what he's done how does he feel verse 2 tells us that he is filled with remorse filled with remorse remorse means feeling guilty and ashamed Judas feels really bad about what he's done. He hates himself for what he's done. He's distraught. What have I done? I've betrayed an innocent man. But crucially, Judas does not change. If only he had hated his sin so much that he brought it to God, that he repented of it and he asked for mercy from God. If only he had done that. C.H. Spurgeon, the uh, 19th century Baptist preacher, said this, Among all the lost souls of hell, there is not one who can say, I went to Jesus and he refused me. And had Judas done that, had he gone to God and say, I've, I've really messed up, forgive me, I repent, I believe he would have been forgiven. He could have had all his guilt removed, his conscience cleansed, his despair lifted, and his hope restored. Peter also failed Jesus, as we saw last week. He denied all knowledge of him. I've never met the man, he said. But he broke down and repented and returned. He brought all his failures, all his faithlessness to Jesus. And he told Jesus from the heart that really he loved him. And he was forgiven. And he was restored. Perhaps this is where you find yourself today in some way. Maybe you've, you've messed up in some way. You feel, you feel terrible about it. But Judas shows us that it's not enough just to feel bad. Bring it to God in repentance and faith today, if that's where you are. Tell him you don't want to just feel bad about it. You want to be changed. You want a new start, a new day in your life. Ask for grace. God will give it to you. Judas or Peter. Both of them followed Jesus. 
Both of them failed him badly, but one had a heart of stone and one had a soft heart of flesh. C.H. Spurgeon again said it so well. He said, the same sun which melts wax also hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some to repentance hardens others in their sins. Don't be like Judas. Please, don't be like Judas who broke down in self-loathing but tragically never repented and never returned. He brought all his failures and faithlessness not to Jesus but to the grave and ultimately down to hell. Thirdly, you might be able to fake your salvation, but you cannot fool the Savior. People can fake it to please their parents or make their spouse happy or to fit in with friends, and it can fool them brilliantly for years, but it doesn't fool God. And if you've been pretending, break that cycle and get real today. And fourthly, it's not enough to enjoy good Bible teaching every week. Hope you feel you do here. Judas sat under the best Bible teaching ever. You know, it was world class. He had the best possible preacher to listen to every day. He was a student at Jesus Christ University. How good is that? Doesn't get better than that, does it? Imagine asking Judas what it was like. Who was your teacher at Jesus Christ University? Oh, wait, for Old Testament, we had Jesus Christ. He was amazing. For systematic theology, yeah, that was Jesus Christ as well. For apologetics, oh, yeah, our tutor was Jesus Christ. For evangelism, yeah, that was Jesus Christ as well. But listening to great Bible teaching does not guarantee you spiritual growth. It doesn't. James 1.22 says, don't just listen to God's word. Do what it says. Otherwise, James says, you're only fooling yourselves. Terry Virgo tells of the time when he was a guest speaker in a church in Washington, D.C. And it was a good meeting. Uh, everything went well. Everyone was very appreciative. And after he preached, the service leader, a guy called C.J. Mahaney, asked the congregation a question. He said this, how many of you have been blessed this morning? And hundreds of people raised their hand, big church, hundreds of people raised their hands straight away. And then he shocked everyone by saying, put your hands down, you're all wrong. And uh, everyone was taken aback, uh, including Terry Virgo, incidentally, who thought he'd preached a blinder. <laughs> but CJ went on to explain that Jesus said this, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. If you do them. You're blessed if you do them. I hadn't done them yet, so they weren't blessed. Judas heard every word Jesus said, but he didn't really believe it, so he didn't do it. He heard Jesus every day, but his heart never changed. He allowed himself to stay pretty much unmoved, unreceptive, unresponsive, just cool, just passive to everything Jesus said. Well, it's been a pretty serious and, and sobering morning in God's word today, hasn't it? There's no denying it, and 
Honestly, how could it be otherwise when preaching on despair and betrayal and suicide? But this is what happens, you know, when you teach the Bible through verse by verse. You come across passages you wouldn't naturally pick. You cannot just stick to the bits that make everyone feel good and go home with a warm glow. You can't do that. Or put another way, preachers shouldn't just preach what people want to hear. They must preach what people need to hear. Well, what do you think God's been saying to you this morning? What's he saying to you? Maybe none of us are at rock bottom where Judas was in his last week. You probably wouldn't be here this morning, let's face it, if you were there. But maybe we find ourselves messing around at the top of the slippery slope where Judas was three years before this all happened. Am I letting my heart slowly grow colder? Am I finding that I'm gradually beginning to withdraw and take a back seat? I'm not having a go at you on the back seat. I mean, metaphorically, having a back seat. Am I bringing my failures to Jesus systematically? Am I starting to love money that it becomes an ultimate goal in my life? It's, it's becoming an idol, like he did. Does it ever touch my comfort, conscience that I might be faking it all at times? Am I getting into a habit of just listening to the word but doing nothing about it? Am I casually steering the ship of my faith a bit too near the rocks well if so let's turn that ship around today yeah that's you I beg you please change course before you leave this building today if you're able to should we stand to pray